so good to be with you, everyone here in the room, everyone at the campuses watching online. Welcome. It is a beautiful day, a nice crisp day. Flannels are here, which means fall is here, right? I love meeting people that just moved here from like the West Coast and like we're just so excited to experience the seasons. I'm like, are you? Really? Like, yeah, we just love it right now. Um, and what I come to find out is you really don't love seasons. You, you like colorful leaves and you like paying too much for pumpkins. I think that's what you enjoy. So just hold on to that same energy when you're in your third winter and you're like, what, what has happened? Uh, but honestly, so glad that you guys are with us here today. It is a, an amazing season. God's doing some incredible things. One of those big ones is coming up October 28th, our men's night. Men's night. Any fellas going to be there in the room at the campuses? A couple deep voices from the crowd. So that's good to know. Um, but if you have not signed up, I want to encourage you, get signed up. This is going to be an incredible night, some good food, worship, teaching, a chance to be together, all right? And if you have registered, this is a good time to be thinking about who are the men in my life around Indy that need to be here with me on this night and invite them, all right? October 28th, we hope to see you there. And as far as today goes, we're continuing in our series, The Foreigners. And what we've been doing in this series is studying the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. And the reason we've titled it this is because in this letter that, that Peter writes to the churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, a lot of times this is how he refers to them. He says, hey, you, you feel like foreigners because you are. Like there's, there's a reason for it because you came to faith, you came to know Jesus, you had this closeness with him and with his people, but then when you leave that and you, you, you went back home to new cities and you started your, your old jobs, it's, it's very different. And then it feels like in some ways you're, you're second class citizens. And he meets them right where they are. He says, you feel like that because there's a sense of that that it's true, that now your citizenship is in heaven, so it's never going to feel the same here on earth. But he meets them where they are, but he doesn't leave them there. Peter has this unbelievable ability to raise their heads up, to say that even though you're a foreigner where you are, that's not who you are. Your identity is so much more rich than that. And that's what he's going to be focusing on today is, is who are you? And that's a question I would love to just loft out there to all of us. Who are you? Kind of a loaded question. And maybe you'd answer that in a bunch of different ways. But at the end of the day, if someone asked you, who are you? How would you define it? Who would you say that you are? You know, for me, I have a hard time uh, with self-worth. I have a hard time uh, with insecurities. I really don't think much of myself. And I think the older I get, the more aware of it, of how not normal and how not okay and not even true that it is. But most of the settings that I'm in, whether I'm at a, a meeting and I'm sitting at a table, whatever position I'm feeling, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I should not be here. I don't belong here. They could find 10 other people that could do what I do. And I'll tell you what really kind of 
shows this is anytime I do something, I lead something, I preach a sermon, and someone comes up to me with positive feedback, and they say, hey, we just want you to know you did a great job. My first thought is, you are lying. <laughs> Seriously, this, this, I'm going to welcome you into the darkness that is me. Um, my thought is, wow, I knew it wasn't great, but I didn't know I did so bad that you had to come over here and try to make me feel better. <laughs> I promise you. And that's messed up, and I know it's not right, and I know it's not true, but that is the kind of stuff that I fight with. And whether it's thinking too much of ourselves or not thinking enough of ourselves, both of them are rooted in pride. I love the way Andy Minio says it. He says, I know that pride and insecurity are the same thing. And what Peter is going to do here is he's going to lift our heads up. He says, hey, I want you to take a moment and forget about where you came from. Forget about the family you were born into. Forget about the job that you hold. Forget about who people say you are. Forget about your past. And no matter what it looks like, and I want you to raise your head up. And I want you to see who God says you are. And we're going to read some stuff today, and it's all about identity, all about who we are as a church. And when you hear some of the things that Scripture says that you are, your pride is going to tell you, that's not me. I'm a lot of things, but I don't think I'm that. I'm not worthy to hold that. And I just want to encourage you now, before we even open his word, to fight the temptation to reject it and to receive it and to walk out of here with a new identity. That church, this is who we are today. And for those that are coming, that are guests, that are skeptics, that are trying to figure this out, I want you to know that what we read today, what God says about the church and his people, that could be you. Not one day, not a week from now, not years from now, today, this identity could be yours. And I'm telling you, it is the greatest identity we could ever walk in. All right? So if you have a Bible, go ahead. Yeah, there we go. We already got some energy going. We're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Take a look at this. Peter says, so get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now, now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So I want us to focus on a few things. And this is the hard part about teaching through 1 Peter. It is so good. Every word is so rich. And every word builds upon the next. That we really can only read a few words and be like, all right, let's break this down and explain it. So Peter says, so be done with all of that deceit, all of that hypocrisy, all of that old way of life. Why? What happened before that? Why is he saying, so get rid of all of that? He's saying, get rid of all that because in chapter 1, he said, because you have been born again. You were met with the love and grace of God. That the old you has died and now the spiritual you, you have been born again, born to new life, born to new desires. Everything in your life has been reordered. So live like that is true. 
The things that used to matter don't matter anymore. Now God's love is the most real thing to you. His vision for your life is the most important thing to you. So you got to let go of all of this so that you can grab on to what God has for you. You've tasted his goodness and his kindness. Now continue to cry out for it. He says, cry out for it like a newborn baby. And I don't know how much you know about newborn babies, but I know um, not much either, but I do live with one. Uh, she lives with me. Uh, she does not provide a lot when it comes to providing. But the way that he talks about newborn babies here and crying out for food, I want you to think about that. Because let's just use a hypothetical situation when you think about the eating habits of a baby. Like hypothetically, could you feed a baby, let's just pick a day, like on a Sunday? And then could you wait a whole week and then feed that baby again that next Sunday? You guys think I'm thinking, talking about church? Yeah, Peter says, no, no, no. When you think of your faith and when you think about crying out to God, I want you to think about like a newborn baby that can't go weeks or days, but only minutes and hours. And the only nourishment that they know of is that spiritual milk. He's like, I want you to be just like that because you are born again. You have a new diet. You have a new purpose. You have a new calling, a new life that awaits you. And then look at what he says next. He says, you are coming to Christ who is the cornerstone, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Now, this is another one of those lines where I think we read Scripture sometimes and we have a little bit of an idea, a little bit of an understanding of what these words are and what they mean, but we just read and jump past them. Today, I want to double-click on most of these words. And when we come into this one, I want us to really focus in on temple and cornerstone. Temple and cornerstone. Like we just sang a song uh, that had the word temple in it. And maybe you sang it and we're like, yeah, I think I, I kind of got an idea of what a temple could be. And cornerstone. I remember when I first started coming to church, it was a big song. It was, it was cornerstone. And in Christ alone, our cornerstone. And I would sing it in my hands, not all the way up, but about right here. And be like, yeah, I'm in. I have no idea what a cornerstone is. I thought the book of Acts was a literal Acts. Um, <laughs> like we just say things and, and act like we know what they are. Like it makes me think of, you ever been listening to a song uh, now and it's a song that came out when you were in like junior high and you used to sing this song at the top of your lungs, having no idea what you were singing, but you turn it on now and you start singing it, the lyrics come back and then you're like, oh my goodness. I should not be singing this song. I had no idea. It's like that, but in reverse, okay? So this is going to be a good thing. So when Scripture talks about the temple, what, what is he talking about? Well, uh, an easy way to understand the temple is this. The temple is the place of God's presence. The place of God's presence. Uh, the temple was constructed in Jerusalem. And if you would have went into ancient Jerusalem, this would have been the thing that you would have noticed. It was bigger than everything else. This was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. This is where God would show up to be with his people. It was symbolic. Obviously, God could not be contained to a building, but he chose to be there in the temple. 
And if you look at all of the Bible, it's really the same pattern. God creates a space where heaven and earth overlap, where he can be with his creation, but it's only a matter of time before we mess it up. Think back to the Genesis story. He creates a garden. He puts Adam and Eve in it. What is this place? This is where heaven and earth overlap. And it doesn't take long for them to sin against God. And they are what? Exiled from the garden. But we see God's not done with them. He rescues them. He saves them. He calls them out. He makes them his people. He gives them this temple. He gives them all the ways that they can have him in relationship, be in his presence. But it's just a matter of time before they disobey, before they sin against him, and eventually they are exiled from Jerusalem. Over and over and over again this happens until Jesus steps up on the scene. And Jesus comes in and he clears the temple to make room for a new one. Do you guys remember this? He goes into the temple and he is hot. This is one of the times where you see it, Jesus steps into this temple, they have turned his father's house into just a mess. It's, it's, it's bad. Like they are taking advantage of people. There's money being exchanged. Like he's just, he loses it and he starts flipping tables over. Like I get the picture of he's just like throwing people out of the temple, like Uncle Phil style, just get out. And you remember they come to him after he, <laughs> one man gets everyone out of this temple and the leaders come to him and they're like, hey, who who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right to come in here and to mess up the good thing that we got going on? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, all right, I hear you talking. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the laughter just bellowed across the room. All the Pharisees are just laughing. This was the most foolish thing anyone could ever say. They're like, what are you, crazy? Do you understand how big this temple is? Do you know how special? It took years and years and years to build this thing. And yeah, for sure, you're an okay teacher. You did a great job flipping over the tables. But there's no way you could build a temple in three days. But Jesus wasn't talking about this physical temple. He knew that this temple's days were numbered. And it's... This temple was leaving and a new temple was coming, one that he would be the cornerstone of. So what Jesus was saying there was, hey, you're about to tear me down. You're about to execute me on a cross and leave me for dead, but I will rise. And I will defeat sin and death and I will change the game of what it looks like for heaven and earth to overlap. That I am bringing a new temple with me. And that's where he uses this language of, and I will be the cornerstone of this temple. And cornerstone, once again, isn't a word that we use all the time or ever, um, but cornerstone is a really big deal in, um, in the ancient times. A lot of times the, the cornerstone was the first stone that was set during the construction project. This cornerstone was placed and then every other stone found its place next to this one. This was the point of the start and if I, how I knew that I was aligned was that if I matched up to this one. So Jesus says, I'm bringing a new temple. I'm the cornerstone. It's changing everything about what you've known between God and humanity and how they interact. And then look at what he says for me and you. He says, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests 
through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So what did he say? He said, so Jesus is the cornerstone, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. And then me and you, we are living stones. Living stones. I want to pay attention to that word living. Like you ever sent someone a document and said, hey, this is a living document. What are you saying? Changes are still being made. Edits are still going through. We are making this thing better. So what Jesus says here is I'm bringing in, I'm ushering in a new temple, one where I am the cornerstone. And everyone who believes in me will be born again. And not, they will not find their place in a physical temple, but they will find themselves as living stones being stacked against me, the cornerstone. And why this is so important is that when we go through our lives, a lot of times when we wrestle with the question of identity, it's how are we stacking up? And depending on what you look to and how you answer that, that'll change how you feel. If you are a living stone and you're wondering, how am I stacking up financially? How am I stacking up with culture? You begin to build a life that Jesus never called you to build. Followers of Jesus, the blueprint has already been laid. The cornerstone is already there. Our stones are merged together with the blood and body of Jesus, cemented to him. So when I want to know how I'm stacking up, I don't get to decide what that looks like. My position is based on the relationship to that cornerstone. Am I leveled to that? Am I plumb to that? Am I looking like that stone? Am I building together this spiritual temple that Jesus has called me to be a part of? That we are the living stones connected to the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And the, the wild thing is, Jesus came to usher in this new kingdom, but it was actually something that was prophesied about long before, that this model was coming, this new temple would come. And that's what we're going to read in verse 6. Peter is actually going to reference that prophecy from Isaiah. Take a look at this. He says, as the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. So what is he saying here? He says, Jesus was that cornerstone that was prophesied about. That even though it was rejected by men, it would become the cornerstone that everything else to come would be built upon. And that was the life of Jesus, wasn't it? This teacher that came through, that ruffled some feathers, that flipped tables in the temple, that people rejected him. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. So they sentenced him to death. They got rid of him, threw him into an empty grave. But they didn't realize that he was the cornerstone. And he resurrected and he came back. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying that, that prophecy, that is about Jesus. And basically what he says here is that we have two options when it comes to Jesus. 
We can either receive him and build our life on him as the cornerstone and have a strong life that nothing else can produce. Or he will be a continuous stumbling block that we will never be able to get around. You can't go around Jesus. You can't ignore him. You will either build your life on him or you will spend your life stumbling, falling more and more into darkness. It makes me think of like, have you ever um, like stumbled, but then were so embarrassed that, uh, that you stumbled that you pretended like you were just going for a run? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you're just walking down the road, there's nothing in your way, but you catch just the little side of the sidewalk and you trip a little bit and instead of just letting that be, you can't, right? So you stumble and you're like, oh, no, just gonna go for a little run. Yep, no, uh, no, nah, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. I'll just continue walking. Like people that see you really think that that's what you are doing. Like I remember when I was at IU, there was this building and these stairs were like this. And I promise you there was about 30,000 of them. And every day I would trip up the stairs. And instead of just tripping up the stairs, gathering myself and then walking back up, I would trip and then just take off running. Like looking like Rocky Balboa in the middle of the IU campus running up these stairs. What Peter's saying here is that a lot of us are stumbling through life, but we're pretending like we're running. We're pretending like we're thriving. So many of us jumped into a life stacking ourselves up against these goals and trying to find ourselves maybe in an amount of money or a profession, a career that takes and takes and takes a life that we thought would bring so much. And instead of admitting that we're stumbling, and instead of admitting that we don't like this, we just continue to pretend like we're going on a run. But in reality, I think if you were pushed and you were asked, you would know, man, this life feels a lot more like falling than it does running and thriving and flourishing. And what Peter's saying here is like, the world has to do that because they disobey God's way, because they don't match up with his cornerstone. They're going to continue to fall and fall. That's their fate. But he says, for you, it's going to be different. Because for you, you have all of this that God has already provided. And now he's going to go into this bit of who you are. Remember what I said. It's going to be hard to hear. You're going to not believe that these words are for you. But I just want you to know they are. Okay, so take a look at this. He says, you're not going to fall, though. You're not going to stumble because you're not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. This is who you are. If when I phrased that question at the beginning of today and you answered it differently, probably much differently than, than how Scripture describes you, take it back. You don't have to live with that identity that someone gave you. You don't have to live with the identity that you've given yourself. Jesus has already given you enough to go off of. Don't accept anything less. And what I want us to do is just work through each one of these one by one to say this is who you are. All right. So take a look at this. The first one. He says, you are a chosen people. Notice how he says, this is who you are. And then he uses only communal language to describe that, right? It's this idea that our relationship with Jesus can never be fulfilled without relationship with others, right? 
So he says, you are a chosen people. Some translations say a chosen race. But when you look at the original Greek, the, the word that's behind it is actually lineage. It's even smaller than that. It's actually a family. He says, you are a chosen family. Now think about how, how much hope that would have brought to these people. Scattered all across the empire, living this new faith following Jesus. And for a lot of them, when they said yes to Jesus, their family said no to them. They were disowned. They were removed from the family, which the family was the bedrock. The family was everything. And Peter says, hey, no matter where you find yourself, I want you to know that you have family here, that you are a chosen people. That's an incredible, incredible place to be. That me and you, that we are family because of God, that it was the blood of Jesus that made us family with him. And he's saying, I don't want you to look past that. No matter where you find yourself, I want you to know that you, no matter your family background, you're a chosen people. Take a look at this. This is the big one. Royal priests. If I had to guess, no matter how many conversations you had with how many different people, and they asked you to describe who you were, you wouldn't be like, I'm a royal priest, actually. No, 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 I am, I am. Uh, I know what you're thinking. But I'm telling you, there's so much power here that you are a royal priest. And like I said, probably doesn't come up in conversation with you. It, it doesn't exactly come up with me. But when I say that I'm a pastor, people hear priest. They hear a lot of different things. So it's like same difference, I think, you're, you're one of those. Um, and I know we joke a lot about how weird it gets when we tell people what we do. But at the same time, there's also a high level of respect most of the time. That's why they begin to like apologize, and like, oh, I didn't mean to say that or make that joke or uh, I usually don't talk like that. Um, there's this idea of like, man, I, I respect it. There's a discipline there that you've given your life to these things. And what I want us to see is that I shouldn't be the only one having these awkward conversations. That as followers of Jesus, we should be living in such a way that we are so committed that when people see you, they see royal priests. That even though that you are an accountant, a firefighter, a police officer, a teacher, a social worker, a student, an artist, that's what you do. But above that, the purpose, the calling of your life is that you are a priest. A royal priest. Why royal? Because of your lineage. You are royalty. And you have this unbelievable job as a priest. And I want us to take this back. Because I know a word like priest, you probably have a thousand different definitions of what a priest is and why you do not want to be one. But here, let's just look at the basic role of a priest. From the Bible, this is what we see. The role of a priest, they were tasked to re represent people to God and represent God to people. At the end of the day, that is the calling over their lives. This is what they did day in and day out. What does it mean to represent people to God? That means that I am constantly bringing people to the throne room of God. Even if they choose to never go themselves, they're coming because of me. That when I sit down and I pray, I look to God and I realize 
is that I have been made into a spiritual temple. That I am this mini temple. That the God of this universe has chosen to dwell within. And I'm very aware of my darkness and my problems. So I say, God, clean it out. Cleanse me. Make me holy. Make more room for your spirit, for the fruit of your spirit to dwell within me. And then I look out to the church and I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I bring them into the throne room of God. And then I look out to the world, people that don't know Jesus. And I pray for them. Intercessory prayers. I pray on your behalf because I'm a priest. And then the second one is we bring God to people. When we talk about evangelism, this is what that is. And we always talk about it within a relational context, right? We want to be living with people, the people in our neighborhoods, the people we love, the, our families. These are the people that we are praying for, and these are the people that we are telling God about. And a lot of us, especially within, I would say, the past few years, we try to move into this place of like, hey, I'm cool with living it out, but I don't want to talk about it. Like there's so many rules and so much red tape. I don't know what I can say or what I can't say. So here's what I will do. I will just be kind and loving and respectful and pray that conversation happens or pray that it doesn't. Um, but here's the problem with that. You see, the way the gospel message came, what the gospel message is, is news. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. It in of itself is words. So to share it, I'm going to have to use words. And I know that there's that saying of like, hey, live the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Well, we had a pastor on here really kind of poke fun at it. And I poke fun at it knowing that when I first read it years ago, I was like, this is my life quote. I, this is who I want to be. But the more you get into it, you, more, you see it's kind of short-sighted. It would be like if I told you, hey, I'm going to start a mission here, and my mission is to feed the hungry. And when necessary, I'm going to use food. <laughs> right? You're like, I don't think there's another way to do it. Um, I think you can leave that part out. Like, you, you have to use words. So he says, this is who you are, that you are chosen, that you are royal priests that we get this opportunity to intercede, to be the ones that help reconcile God to his creation. What higher honor could we possibly be given that we are royal priests? And look at this. He just keeps going. He says, you are a holy nation. Now, this is not a perfect nation. This is a nation that has been set apart. This is a nation that is distinct. This is a nation within a nation all the time. That's one of the unique things about Christianity is that it doesn't have a home. There's no place for Christians to go home to because the moment the Christian faith took off, it began to scatter. It was right there on the fringe of like three continents. So when, whenever he's talking to all these people that are now everywhere across the known world, he says, hey, remember that you're a part of a holy nation now. No matter the nation you used to attach yourself to, no matter what you used to claim allegiance to, I want you to know now to remember that you are a holy nation. And that no matter how that nation treats you, 
no matter how safe or unsafe you feel, no matter what they promise you, you need to know that it'll never be enough. But the good thing is that you are connected to a holy nation. Look what he says next. God's very own possession. So he just called us all of these incredible things, right? You are priests. And maybe when you heard that, you're like, I need to go home, freshen up my resume. I need to work some things out because I do not know if I qualify to be a priest. And I love that he ends here with this. He says, you are God's very own possession. And let me tell you this. You can look from the beginning to the end of the Bible. When God picks someone, anyone, everyone, it is never because of how good they are. It is because of how much he loves them. The weight of the priesthood, the weight of the nation will never find its way to your shoulders because the cornerstone is holding all of that. Our job is to be there and to be everything that God has called us to, to a watching world. And he labels all of, he gives us so much on the identity side. This is who you are. This is who you are. This. And then finally, here in these last few verses, he's going to say, as a result... This is what I want you to do. Look at this. He says, once you, as there we go, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. He said, now, once you were not a people, but now you are my people. I love that phrase, my people. It's a phrase that I use all the time when I take a picture and I post it. A lot of times in the caption, I'll say my people. What am I talking about? I'm talking about these are my family. These are my closest friends. These are the people that I will put their needs above my own. These are the people that I fight spiders for. If I lived alone, uh, I would be moving so much because I wouldn't even go toe-to-toe with a spider. I would just leave. But not for them. For them, I will fight spiders. I will get up in the middle of the night. I will do everything. But what Scripture is saying here is that, you know, you know what it's like to not be a part of a people. You remember what it was like to be literally dead in your trespasses. But now you have new life. Now you're chosen. Now you're living stones. Now you are priests. And he's asking the question, well, who, who are my people then? Is it, just, is it just Israel? Is it just the Jews? Is it just my neighborhood? No. Jesus died for all people. He gave himself for all people. So all people are our people. All people are our people. You can't find someone that God didn't create and Jesus didn't die for. Let that be enough for love. We don't need another common denominator, but they don't look like me. Their skin color is different than mine. They grew up in a different part of the world. My family always told me this about them, but they hold to this political ideology. It doesn't matter. We don't need another common denominator. Every person is someone God created and Jesus died for. What if, they're, what if they are claiming to be my enemies? What if they hate me? Jesus said, love your enemies. P- 
pray for those who persecute you. There's no way around it. If we are going to be living stones, then we're going to place ourselves in this vulnerable place to say, no matter what you do or say to me, I will not be compromised. My love will shine through because I've been called out of the darkness and I know what it means to live in the light. One more. He's got one more little bit for us. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that rage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So it's twofold. Once again, he says, this is who you are. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn away from all of those desires that you once had because God has reorchestrated those. He's brought them back. So now you don't have to live that way anymore. Abstain from that. Then he says, I want you to live properly. Right? I want you to live like you are connected to this temple and that everywhere you go, you are a representative of the one who sent you. I love the way that the message translates this. Take a look. It says, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. And here's a line. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live as exemplary Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they will be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. What a life. He says, don't live for your, for your ego. Don't get the things that you think your heart wants and to lose everything else. He's saying, don't give up your place in the temple for the mansion that you're trying so hard for, thinking that'll make you feel at home here. Nothing will make you feel at home. Don't risk it. And then he says, I want you to live in such a way that you begin to break down the stereotypes of other people. Because I don't know if you know this, but people have a lot of thoughts about Christians in the church and what it is and what it's not and what it's about. And all it takes is for them to meet one that is different. That we live next to people in our neighborhoods that have so many thoughts about what it means to be a Christian and what the church is all about. And because they know you go, they already made up their mind about you. But we can live in such a way that it really confuses them. Because when you live with stereotypes, when you live with secondhand information, it's usually because you've never experienced the real thing. And when you begin to live next to someone that is a Christian, but they're not judgmental, you, you don't have a box for it. It begins to weaken the belief that you have about those people. And you can apply this across the board. But when you begin to live in such a way and you're caring and you're loving and you're kind, and they're really wrestling with this, of like, I thought I knew what Christians were. I thought they were like this. But now that I met her, I don't know anymore. I love the way Bonhoeffer said it. He said that your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their belief, their disbelief in God. That's the idea. That I'm living next to some royal priests. And it's stirring something within me. Because I see the life that they are building is so different than the life that I'm building. 
I see the foundation that they stand on weathers the storm so much better than, than what I'm standing on. I see how kind they are to their kids. I see how they invite neighbors over into their homes. Who does this? And little by little, it says that our lives can begin to take away those stereotypes, to, to remove them. And it says that when this happens, that people will begin to celebrate God for who he is and all that he's done. And that's what we get to be a part of. So I just want to go over this one more time. Of who we are. And I pray that you receive these words. I pray that you live like they, this is the most true thing about you. Followers of Jesus, the church, this is who you are. You are born again. The old is gone. You shared in a death like Jesus and you have been resurrected to new life with new loves, a new purpose. That you are living stones, building up into God's spiritual temple. That you have such a sacred place. That you are a chosen people, family with God, making you family with one another that you are royal priests, that everywhere you go is the space where heaven and earth overlap, that Jesus has made a way that now the living God, the God of everything has chosen to dwell within you and has tasked you to make a difference, to help bring heaven to earth to represent people to him and represent him to people. We are ambassadors of God. That we are a holy nation, distinct, set apart. We live like no other nation. And this is all held together, not because of who we are, where we came from, our background, but because we are his chosen people. We are his very own possession. That is who you are. And by living out that truth, by living out that identity, we will begin to reclaim the name of Jesus and what it means. We will reclaim the name of priests. We will reclaim the name of what it truly means to be royal. A king doesn't mean that he just does whatever he wants. King Jesus proved that by saying, I didn't come here to be served, but I came to serve. we can live in such a way. And don't take that for granted. The, the life you live has the power to move someone from stumbling to having them stepping over to see Jesus for who he is. It could be your life. That was my case. I had so many thoughts of the church and Jesus and God, none of them validated just by what I'd heard. And then I met someone who was a Christian, who was unlike anyone I'd ever met, and she shared the gospel with me. And I came into not a church, I came into this very church, walked through those very front doors. And I experienced a church that was unlike any church I could have ever fathomed. And now, 12 years later, I've given my life to spreading the gospel imperfectly in the messed up way that I do it.
But I can tell you on this side, there is nothing greater to give your life to. There is nothing stronger. And for those of you that are here today and you're saying, I want that. I want to be a part of that family. I'm not sure about the priesthood thing, but I could get to know a little bit more maybe. Um, But seriously, if that's what you want, God has literally moved heaven and earth for you to have this relationship, for this new temple to come, for, for you to be the housing place of God's very spirit, for you to have a Lord and a savior, for you to have a way to exist for eternity in a perfect relationship with him. That can begin today, to be born again, to die to everything else, to give up stumbling, to give up walking through the darkness. What you do is you repent. You say, I'm done living that way. I'm done trying those things. I'm done looking to that for complete fulfillment. I'm done believing that the ache that I feel can be found anywhere else. And God, I bring all of my brokenness to you for you to make me whole and holy. And that's a prayer that he answers every single time. And what I want us to do right now is corporately, we're gonna have a moment of worship. So would you stand to your feet? And I was reading a commentary this week and uh, was talking about this new temple and these living stones. And it made her think of um, this story of a Spartan king. And in this, uh, in this story, the Spartan king is standing there with another monarch. And the monarch is very curious about the strength of Sparta, how they're able to, to move the way that they do, how they're able to conquer. And he, he goes to him, he says, can you, can you explain it to me? What is the source of your strength. And the Spartan king doesn't hesitate. He looks right at him. And he says, our strength is easy. It's it's the walls of Sparta. And the, the old king looks around at the city. And he says, good king, I don't see any walls. What are you talking about? And the Spartan king looks to his army and he says, they are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. And I think in the same way, when you wanna know the strength of the church, it's us. Every man, woman, and child, a living stone being built up, many temples being forged together from this place and expanding to the ends of the earth. That is who we are. And what I want us to do right now is worship. And we're gonna sing that song that we sang at the beginning of the service. And I pray that when you sing the word temple this time, that it really comes to life and you realize what was done and you realize the new temple and the part that you play in it. Would you pray with us? God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for just a chance to come to you. And God, just just for a moment to let go of all the labels, all the beliefs, all the self-talk about who we are and who we're not, and just to have a moment 
to be reminded of who you've said we are, who you've called us to be. And God, it's, it's your opinion that matters anyways. You're the one that decides. So God, don't let us settle for anything else. God, I pray that you would grab a hold of the hearts of everyone here today, that they would be strengthened together, that we would walk out of here knowing that we're going to different neighborhoods and homes and parts of the city, but we are one church. We are the walls of your temple. We are the walls of your kingdom. Brick by brick, God, I pray that your kingdom advances. God, thank you for the honor that it is to serve you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your perfect name we pray. Amen.